Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is a longtime listener and supporter, but first-time guest, Connor Gaffey. Hello, everyone. Delighted <laughs> to be here. Yeah, you're very excited. I really am. I'm actually really thrilled to have him on. We're going to have a fairly different discussion. I don't think we've touched on anything kind of even remotely close to this before. We decided, given that Connor is about to embark on a six-month-long expedition across Africa to take a look at stories that maybe are a little outside the focus of the West. I think usually in kind of English literature, um, there's a big focus on Europe and America and or specifically North America. And we're going to take a slightly different view and we're going to look at some stories about Catholic and Christian missionaries. And obviously, I feel like... (laughs) I feel like I've given you quite a weighty topic, a first-time guest. Yeah, you have. <laughs> but also, I think, you know, I think it's a it's a really interesting topic. We've been talking about it for a while. And, you know, there's particularly in a kind of like our modern kind of society, there's a particular view of, you know, missionary activity and, mm-hmm. you know, particularly how it's all wrapped up with kind of colonisation and that. So people have opinions on it. So yeah. I think it would definitely... There's it, enough meat on the bone to... Uh, to definitely. Get our teeth into. <laughs> definitely. The I feel like, yeah, perceptions of the, the missions have gone through cycles and the wheel of time kind of turns and at one time they were very much seen as great saints and what they were doing was in its entirety beautiful and great and wonderful. And I think the wheel has turned currently and there's definitely kind of a weight of prejudice against the even just the idea of missionary work now and a desire to see native cultures left to be native cultures and to not have what's seen as a western ideology kind of imposed on them in any way um, and obviously the reality is is that history lies somewhere between the two mm. <laughs> i think the modern trepidation around exerting force in another culture is a very just one and I think it's definitely something that we we need to be aware of and and look at respecting cultures and seeing the good that the world has to offer but also as Christians and as Catholics we do see that we are offering eternal life Mm. and that's not something to be idle about or to see as being the calling of one set of people in the world but not another and that bringing an encounter with Jesus to anyone is an encounter with a loving God who wants to be with you for eternity. From a, a Christian point of view, I don't think we would ever say it's it's the right thing to, to leave people untouched by Christ in any way. So it's a really, really interesting thing. I, I hope, I've been thinking about this a lot because I really want to be nuanced and want to be careful about what I'm saying in terms of like setting the historical context. The reality is we're going to be talking about some of the stories so we're not actually focusing on history. I certainly don't have the skill or knowledge to run any kind of history podcast. I'm not going to be answering to every occasion of every missionary of any era. This is just going to be spotlighting a couple of the the most famous stories around the history of missionaries in the world because they actually hold quite an important place in our kind of cultural discussion so I think we're going to explore that but 
we still need to set a little bit of historical context and I, I do want to like take a little bit of time to approach that in a kind of holistic way rather than just say missionary good or missionary bad. Yeah. We were talking about, uh, actually I've been following Bishop Barron on Instagram recently and he's uh, been recording the final two episodes of season two of The Pivotal Players, which are actually really fitting for the discussion that we're having now, because the first one is St. Ignatius, who founded the Jesuits, who were obviously one of the kind of main forces of missionary activity in the world. Big uh, fan. Yeah, you're a big fan. <laughs> um, and yeah, and they continue to be today, like that's a, a big part of their mm. role. And then the other one was Bartolome de las Casas, who is a Dominican. And in some ways, he kind of really exemplifies how complex a history this is. So he went to South America and the American islands and in the beginning was part of the colonizing forces that enslaved people and put them to work. And then when he started to be uncomfortable with that, his initial reaction was actually then to like say, well, maybe we shouldn't do this to native Indians, as they were called. Obviously, that's an inaccurate term, but maybe we shouldn't be doing this to, to native people, but maybe we should be importing people from Africa. And so he's seen as someone who was part of the initial push for African slaves, which is obviously a, a terrible thing. But he he developed over his life then and really cultivated and was one of the main driving forces behind the concept of fighting for everyone's rights and he he's seen as one of the very initial people to begin the idea of universal human dignity and human rights and even the foundation of international law because he dedicated his whole life to upholding the rights of all people he becomes this person who like his whole life was centered around this but as you can see like even within his own life there's a very kind of complex experience of interacting with these ideas and and growing and becoming more reflective and seeing more of Christ in the world around him. So really, I'd not heard of him. Um, yeah. It's just really interesting. I was just thinking as you're describing his life there, it's almost like a microcosm of, you know, the kind of good and bad of missionary activity in the sense yeah. of obviously in the first place, it was this idea of, you know, coming to a culture and just wiping the slate clean and, you know, bringing not only Christianity, but also perhaps Western political ideas and social ideas, which are obviously not necessarily part of the gospel, mm -hmm. but just the norms that he was used to. And obviously that role in slavery, which is not something that I'm sure the church would, would be proud of. But then, as you said, like later in life, kind of come into this promoting the, the rights of the poor, of the oppressed and that, which is a kind of key part of Christianity. And when we were talking about this, you were saying about how Christianity will disrupt cultures when mm -hmm. it, you know, when it encounters them for the first time, because largely lots of cultures are built on power structures. No one wants to be at the bottom of the power pyramid. And Christianity comes in and says, well, actually, you know, the last will be first and the first will be last. Yeah. Most people don't really like to hear that. Like, and <laughs> Particularly so, if you're at the top. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's a really interesting i've not as i said i've not heard of him but his whole life that kind of is a sort of microcosm of like you know the kind of quote-unquote good and bad yeah kind of missionary activity absolutely and i think that we were having a big discussion about that about uh, the, a lot of the stories that we're going to be talking about today you'll see the kind of resistance to having their own culture wiped clean and of course a lot of colonizers would have seen themselves as bringing culture in the first place as if culture did not exist in mm. these places beforehand and how People, some people then, and, and certainly now, we have a much more nuanced view of respecting 
the culture that you find when you when you encounter a new people. It, I think it, it is definitely the place of, of Catholicism and Christianity to look at whatever good is in a culture and try and preserve that. But like we were saying, any introduction of Christianity by kind of de facto changes the nature of that culture, particularly because culture and social order are so closely tied and yeah. so so linked that you can't you can't expect it to be like quote unquote the same culture but with Christianity. Yeah, it's not like, you know, you bring in a new sport to a culture and it just kind of integrates them and say, oh, okay, you know, we play football rugby and now mm-hmm. there's extra sport now. It's like a whole way of life that has social, economic, political ramifications Mm -hmm. and so therefore will yeah necessarily have an impact on that culture i guess it's yeah how that impact is kind of managed and you know what the motivations are of the people you know bringing christianity there and i think it also speaks to something that we've actually lost in modern culture which is it's kind of evidence of how christianity is not the same as any other faith like okay, you can point to the golden rule, like treat others as you would like to be treated. But if that were true, you could integrate Christianity without much disruption, if it were just the same as any other kind of set of beliefs. But the reality is, is it's very much not. It's actually quite a subversive faith in that it challenges what you expect to be the norm of social structures. Like the idea of scapegoating is so universal and putting all of the negative feelings of a tribe onto one person is so kind of consistent across cultures, across the world. And the fact that Christianity, it doesn't allow for it in that it puts that on Christ and then we, we reconcile ourselves to Christ as the, the scapegoat. I think it would challenge people now to, to admit that Christianity by its very nature is disruptive because it's not the same as anything else and that it isn't replicated in lots of other faith. But that, like we said, that that means that it does have a significant impact on wherever it's brought to. Mm. In terms of the negative perception of it at the moment. And like we said, there is there is very genuine reasons to have a negative perception, particularly when it was tied up with colonizing forces and using force and forcing people to convert or even like kind of blackmailing them to convert by offering other things. And there were definitely tactics and motivations and parts of the, the whole move to, to colonize the world, like especially the Spanish colonization was very much tied up with the idea of like well sure we're going to get all this gold but we're also going to win glory from god because we're going to have all of this for god so the two were very linked and it it is worth recognizing that and that there was a huge trampling on these indigenous people but at the same time i think something that can color people's belief now is that because religion has become such a private thing the idea that you could be genuinely convicted to go and bring christ to other people is kind of foreign to us yeah that you could sacrifice your whole life to go to the most extreme circumstances just on the chance that you might convert people to christ i feel like there's maybe a kind of assumption now that that couldn't possibly come from simply a genuine conviction to bring Christ to people. That there has to be some kind of more materialistic, more ulterior motive that yeah. is for your own personal gain. You know, and obviously that was definitely not universal across all people who were doing missions. But yeah. that is not to deny that there were many, many, many people who were genuinely convicted to bring Christ to the world, but also to love them, genuinely love everyone that they met and try to provide for them and try to improve the way that they lived, either with medicine or with farming or even things like that. But there was, you know, that call to go and love the world. Yeah. 
just one kind of final point as well around the sort of modern perception of mission as well is that there's also this idea that almost like missionary activity is done now, you know, yeah. in the sense that there's not so much of this sense of like, oh, you know, these kind of far-flung, untouched ends of the earth where mm-hmm. Christ hasn't been proclaimed. And, and in a sense, you know, there's been this kind of pivot to, you know, re-evangelizing cultures like, quote-unquote, post-Christian cultures like we have in, you know, you could say in the UK or the US or, or Western Europe where cultures have almost like forgotten their Christian values. And obviously that is an important, you know, Pope Francis talks a lot about like us being missionary disciples. That is an important like aspect of kind of the modern Christian life, particularly in, in countries like those ones which mentioned. So I think, yeah, there's also this sense of like almost missionary activities kind of like some anachronism. Yeah. You know, oh, okay. Yeah. So that was great. You know, in the you know, 19th, 20th century when, you know, you wanted to go out to whether it be Africa, Asia, Latin America and, you know, they hadn't encountered Christianity before, but now it's like the sense of, okay, well, everyone's had their chance to, to hear the gospel. <laughs> some people have taken it, some people have not. Just let them get on with it now. Yeah, So that's really true. And because, yeah. you know, the way there's this thing of like even people who have retained their older cultures, like the Maasai tribe, but yeah. they still use mobile phones. Yeah, now, yeah. That particularly with the internet, for the most part, pretty much everyone in the world has the like ability to access information should they want to. Yeah. And so maybe there's a scene of less of a need to go go and encounter them and, and proclaim. Yeah, and proclaim. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, thanks, but I could read this online. So <laughs> <laughs> if I want to become Christian, I will. But I think that's not actually true. I think we're still called to, to mm. go to the ends of the earth and in whatever setting, bring Christ to people. Exactly, yeah. Particularly with, as you're saying, Christianity is a unique religion, I think, in the sense that it's a personal relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. And obviously we we exalt like scripture and and church doctrine and things like that but i do think that there is an aspect of missionary activity of like the medium is the message as well you know whether it be that missionary or the church in its kind of missionary capacity like bringing the message and demonstrating you know mm-hmm. christ's love and, and the gospel to to people who haven't encountered that before sure they might have read scripture or encounter church teaching online or, or however it may be but i do think yeah as you say we are still called to proclaim it like by our lives and missionary activity in the kind of stricter sense of the word still has a role i guess in that yeah definitely what's kind of interesting about that is then what are we learning from these missionary stories and the other way it applies it is like what we were saying in a more kind of normal for normal for Western Europe and mm. America kind of context of encountering people at the supermarket or a university mm. or whatever. But again, for some people, it will mean going out into the world into more far-flung places. But to kind of move into our the heart of what we're talking about, it's it's these stories that we tell about mission and what, what are we learning for them and why do we find them very compelling and very mm. interesting. And I think what it is about them is, is that it's... The experience of practicing your faith, the most extreme version of it, in that to have a, a group of missionaries go to somewhere where like, they don't speak the language, they don't know anything about what they are, the climate is probably incredibly different to where they're from, and try to convey the idea of the gospel to people who yeah. are probably pretty hostile to you coming and don't speak your language and have very different customs to you. And who whose safety you might be jeopardising by yeah. doing missionary right. activity. We can think of the very extremes of experiencing our faith. It's a, a fight between good and evil, but maybe what's most interesting about 
the missionary stories is that like they're at these extremes, they're in serious danger, they're in serious conflict, and they're also in very complex situations where they're constantly reevaluating whether bringing Christ to these people is doing more harm than good because of all mm. of the colonial baggage that comes with it and all of the dangers that it brings, and even like you know the bringing of diseases around the world. But also, as we'll see in some of the stories, the bureaucratic complexities that come with balancing expectations in, say, Europe yeah. with the expectations of the people that you're encountering in Africa and uh, South America and places like that. That, like, not only are you doing very extreme things, you're not even sure they're the right things. Yeah, and that particularly with, you know, one of the films we're going to talk about, there's this perception that when they start out as missionaries, you know, they're starting out in Europe and going... They they have this great perception of, you know, we're going to get there in what, a year, we're going to have this community of believers who all, you know, know what the Trinity is, know what the seven sacraments are, yeah. you know, and know, know how to live, like, good lives as, as Christians or Catholics. And then the reality of when you get to the setting and you're like, wow, we can literally convey the bare bones of this, mm -hmm. you know, that's all we can hope to get across because, as you say, there's all these barriers, whether they be linguistic or cultural or political or social or whatever. So, yeah, I think there's this real, in these stories that we're going to talk about, there's like a real, like, sense of like the, the what we, what the missionaries kind of hope to achieve and then the reality they encounter, it's like wildly different. Yeah. So the three stories that we're going to touch on are that it's the book Things Fall Apart by Chinue Achebe, the film The Mission, directed by Roland Joffe, and another film Silence, directed by Martin Scorsese. And... Like I said, what I, what's kind of fascinating is how big these stories are in terms of their impact on the world. Like, Things Fall Apart is the post-colonial text, the first really notable example of telling things from a tribal point of view and not from a Western point of view. And looking at African literature as something that might spread out across the world. It was written in the 1950s and in some ways I think we take it for granted now that it's a very famous novel and lots of people read it. In fact, it's I think it's on a lot of like high school curriculums and things like that. Yeah, it was in my, I think, is it SATS or GCSEs? Yeah, yeah. we study. Yeah, it, it's one of those ones that people get given when they're a teenager yeah. and like, okay, this is literature, broaden your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's had a huge impact and so the and it's the story of missionaries coming to an African tribal setting. And then the mission is one of the, the most famous movies, like it's usually on lists of top one hundred movies you have to see. Interestingly, it's also on the list of movies that the Vatican has recommended people watch. Really? Yeah. Which is interesting considering it shows priests being very conflicted about what the mm. right thing to do is. You know? That's that interesting. It, it's not a very like straightforward, oh, Catholic Church, yeah, doing the right yeah, thing, yeah. let's look at that. Yeah. It does have quite a bit of conflict in it. So, yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. And then it feels very linked to Silence by Martin Scorsese. Obviously, I know Silence is based on the book Endo Shizako. I, I don't think either of us have read the book, so we're just going to be talking about the movie. Quite something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely... De <laughs> I found that one difficult. I have to throw my hands up in a bit. Uh, I had to read and watch all of these movies and books for the first time for this podcast. Yeah. So all of this is very fresh and new to me, but yeah, Silence was definitely the one that I was... Uh, struggling with the most. <laughs> I, was, I was saying to you that the first time I saw Silence, like, so as we were discussing about Jesuit missionaries and I went to a Jesuit school, so I was like, oh, you know, I'd like to see this. I couldn't get anyone to come with me, so I was like, oh, mum, let's go and 
come and see this film with me. And we go to the cinema and we are the only two people in there <laughs> in this fairly big cinema. And it is an intense film to watch in a group of people. So when it's two of you and like you're kind of like saying to your mum, like justifying her trip to the cinema to see this proper like emotional tour de force. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a difficult watch, but I think it's worth it. It is yeah. so much to think and talk about on that. Definitely. And I could be wrong. I feel like it did have its premiere was either in Rome or maybe even in the Vatican. It is a really powerful and obviously it like it won Best Cinematography. It was a very mm. famous film yeah. that year. It definitely made waves. It that wasn't year. just like of interest to a Christian audience. It was, you know, I mean, Martin Scorsese, obviously, and yeah. like the cast is like Andrew Garfield, Liam Neeson. It's a, it's a Hollywood film. Yeah. But so yeah I, I thought it was funny because obviously well Liam Neeson is in both <laughs> The Mission and uh, and Silence but uh, I was reading one of the reviews of The Mission it was on Stephen Gray Dallas's website Decent Films and he was saying that in some ways because in The Mission it's um the director is Roland Joffe. It's got a lot of like very famous people in the in the crew within their fields, like really high class people. The music is by Ennio Morricone, and it stars Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons and these big names. Yeah. And he was saying that almost more interesting than the film itself is how did this film get made and why? Yeah. Like why did all of these people sign on to make? Can you this? imagine the pitch to De Niro? So yeah. Like... <laughs> Would you like to play a Jesuit missionary? Yeah. <laughs> uh, like in some ways, that I think those stories are really interesting. I was saying to Connor, one of the things I find fascinating about Silence is that I know Scorsese read the book uh, a long time ago and he wanted to make the movie for about 20 years. So obviously it was kind of fermenting in his mind. But I believe he made a big push to get it made right after it's his next film after the wolf of wall street which is crazy it seems to be like the entire spectrum of like secular decadence to religious extreme persecution it's a big jump really is, um, yeah. so in some ways the fact that these stories captivate and you know a lot of the people involved they may be nominally christian a lot of them are atheist mm. like some of them may have a relationship with catholicism or christianity and obviously that plays a part but for the most part like a relatively secular group of people are making these films that are captivating the world and they're about priestly missionaries yeah. <laughs> so I think we're going to start with Chino Echebe's Things Fall Apart so maybe Connor do you want to give like a, a bit of a sum of yeah. what happens yeah so Things Fall Apart is Chino Echebe's it's in this trilogy it's kind of known as the African trilogy and the protagonist is this guy called Okonkwo and he in his village uh, which is called Umu Ufia he is like He's a big guy, you know, he's like the great warrior. He's kind of proved himself in their annual wrestling competitions. He's thrown this guy who was known as the cat. So he's he's a big player in, in his in his village. And, you know, the book is kind of set in three parts. And the first kind of part and most of the second part as well is just this kind of character development of Conquo. And you just really get the sense that he is a real kind of patriarch of his society. And then there's this tragic accident where he inadvertently kills a member of the tribe and it's, it's an accident, you know, his gun goes off by mistake during a celebration and, and kills a mem another member of the tribe. And as a result, he's forced into a seven-year exile. Like, he has to leave the tribe and go to the land, I think it's of his, his uh, mother's parents. He has to go and live there for seven years. He can't come back. He can't tend... He's a, a farmer and he grows yams. He can't tend his yams. He can't do any of that. He has to just up bring his family and everyone leave 
and spend seven years in exile. So this all happens and kind of concurrently to that, towards the sort of end of the second part, uh, a Christian mission comes to Umofia and kind of gradually starts to establish itself. It's led by this guy called Mr. Brown. And the village, or Conquer in particular, is very dismissive of it and they don't think anything really of it. They think it would just kind of die out. Um, and kind of the waifs and strays of the village who are in the lower echelons of his tribe find their place in the Christian mission and so they're almost happy to be rid of them. So anyway, Conquer goes into his exile, spends seven years there, and then as it's coming towards his return, he speaks to his friend Obiorike about coming back to the village and he kind of tells Okonkwo, you know, the Christian mission has grown up, many people have joined it and it's not passed away as they thought it would. So And that like the home he's coming home to is is significantly changed. I think that's one of the really heartbreaking moments is that he has this vision of what his return is gonna be like and it's mm. gonna be he's gonna make a success of it and his daughters are gonna marry the best people in the village. He's had this misfortune but he's going to make something great of it because his whole mo motivation is his father was this layabout and never made anything of himself. So Okonkwo is very focused on being a success and being someone worth remembering. And then he comes back to his, his village and the, the status quo is sort of significantly changed. Yeah, there's a great quote when Okonkwo is talking to Abiyorike about just before he comes back and they're talking about how how the, the sort of Christian mission has not only you know come as a religion but they've kind of installed a government and a court and it's talking about this land dispute which the Christian court has settled and they haven't kind of settled it according to the, the customs of the tribe and so Okonko is asking his friend Abiyurike you know do they not understand our customs and this is Abiyurike's reply he says how can he when he does not even speak our tongue but he says that our customs are bad and our own brothers who have taken up his religion also say that our customs are bad. How do you think we can fight when our own brothers have turned against us? The white man is very clever. He came quietly and peaceably with his religion. We were amused at his foolishness and allowed him to stay. Now he has won our brothers and our clan can no longer act like one. He has put a knife on the things that held us together and we have fallen apart. That really is the essence of it. And obviously we're not, there's kind of no need to spoil the ending of the book. So I would just recommend that you read it. But mm. as you can tell, it, it's building towards a certain sense of tragedy. And significantly, Okonkwo's son, Nwoye, is one of the people who defects to the Christian missions. And is this tragedy even within Okonkwo's family that his, his son, who he's has such great aspirations for it to be like him yeah. is in some ways so different to him. Yeah, and there's that yeah, there's that real sense of loss. Even before Nwoye's conversion, he he often he's got a daughter called Enzima and he always says in his kind of self dialogue, he's like he wishes Enzima was a boy because Nwoye is just not like him, he's not this great warrior. And then as you say, Rachel, to sort of top it off, Nwoye defects essentially from the tribe. That's how a conqueror sees it, he defects and joins the Christians. But that is an interesting thing in itself. Noye's defection because there's this part where, where it's talking about his motivations for doing so and it brings up this conflict between Christian values and the values of his tribe because the sort of two things that Noye cites as his reasons for leaving uh, the tribe and joining the, the Christian mission is so he had a adopted brother Ikimefuna who Okonkwo really loved like he was this adopted child but 
he was so he wasn't a conqueror's sort of natural biological son but he really loved him and he was almost like you know his heir apparent but because he was adopted and he was a an outsider to the tribe when he kind of came of age he had to be killed because he was seen as you know like a, a sort of outside influence on the tribe and they, they basically just sort of didn't trust that he would grow up and be within the tribe and a conqueror like essentially allows this to happen he's, he's obviously he's very conflicted about it but mm-hmm. they take him Kemefuna out and they're sort of walking in the mountains and then yeah he's he's put to death and not only that but Okonko has recommended that he just allow it to happen but actually Okonko joins the group of people that are taking him out of the of the town he he's part of the movement that results in in the death of Ikefuma. And then the other one is that there's a, a couple of things to do with children. Obviously, there would have been a fairly high mortality rate. And so there was a lot of superstitions around children and, and giving birth. But one of the more, what we would see, disturbing aspects is that twins were simply not allowed. They were seen as evil. And so when twins were born, they were put in jars and left in the forest to die. And there's this one particularly heartbreaking story of a woman who is given birth to like four sets of twins and at this point is so utterly distraught that they keep taking her children away from her and killing them or leaving them to die at least. These are the things that Nuoye just, they don't sit right with him and he can't reconcile himself to. And I think what's really interesting about that is Chinue Chebe's own perspective on why he wrote the story, which is that he grew up as the child of, I think it's Presbyterian ministers, uh, Presbyterian preachers. And so he grew up in this Christian missionary space. And yet, as he grew older, he began to question the benefit of having had the the missions come. And ultimately, I think he, he came down on the side of saying that they did more harm than good. And this book was an exploration of that to him although another big part of it was to to represent that culture because like we said the given that it's ostensibly a story about the missions coming the first like almost three quarters of it are all just about tribal living without any mention of missions yeah so that's a huge part is to represent that not only was their culture, but the culture had something of value and was a beautiful thing and didn't necessarily, maybe it didn't need to be fixed or didn't need to have this input in it to have a cultural value. But considering that was his perspective, he's given a very nuanced view. Mm. And like he did feel really strongly about this. Like Connor shared this incredible quote. Is it from Desmond Tutu? I think it's been attributed to various people, but yeah, I've seen it attributed to Desmond Tutu. But this is kind of the approach that Achebe has, which is to say... When the missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes. When we opened them, we had the Bible and they had the land. Because so much of the stories that in the African trilogy that he writes are based on this land conflict. Yeah. I think that's that's really important and interesting to look at. But yeah, ultimately, despite that negative view of the missions, he writes what feels like a fairly balanced and compassionate... Because I think... Nwoye's perspective, most audiences will be fairly sympathetic to it, Mm. that there is something wrong about killing innocent people and and babies and and having a culture in which these are immediately ostracised or have no chance and have to be scapegoated by the community. Sure, as you say, I think it's a very balanced perspective because there is this emphasis on, you know, this this Christian mission comes to a conqueror's tribe and there is already, you know, a culture there. It's not just some kind of vacuum. But equally, 
Chino Achebe seems to point out that some parts of that culture, you know, are not necessarily desirable, like this mm-hmm. ban on twins. Like, yeah. it's not necessarily something that... And even Okwonko is not the most sympathetic of protagonists. No, And, I mean, like, we would definitely use phrases like... you know, a proud man. Like, yeah, even, like, this sort of painfully modern toxic masculinity but Mm. there is this like supreme focus on the strength of the man and he even like looks down on this other man who's considered an amazing like he the it's an older man in the tribe and he's just passed away and he was this great kind of figure and a great warrior and someone mentions that oh he never did anything without telling his wife about it and Kwongo's like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable with that because that goes against my idea of what a strong man is, you know? Yeah. But even having this close relationship with your wife is something that he can't even bring himself to allow himself to have. And when they're talking about what to do about the Christian missions, <laughs> he's very much of the opinion, you know, that we need to go and, you know, take them out. And the kind of other members of the tribe are a bit more nuanced than he he sort of says to himself when did the tribe become so womanly like he's very you know he's very much a man's man yeah and definitely like womanly is the the worst insult that you can have in this particular story but yeah like i think you were saying a large part of the book is not really mission as a theme doesn't even necessarily isn't definitely not the dominant theme but it kind of it's sort of there in the background, but then really the sort of the last, the third part is where it kind of comes to the fore. And there's this sort of contrast between the two leaders of the Christian mission in Umoyafia. And the first, the guy who brings it there in the first place is called Mr. Brown. And Mr. Brown takes the approach of we're here in a foreign country among people with different customs to us. Like, let's just get ourselves settled and quietly, gradually work our way into the culture. So there's a great exchange where mr brown is talking about you know how those who have joined the christian community should behave and uh, it says mr brown preached against such excess of zeal everything was possible he told his energetic flock but everything was not expedient and so mr brown came to be respected even by the clan because he trod softly on its faith he made friends with some of the great men of the clan and on one of his frequent visits to the neighbouring villages, he had been presented with a carved elephant tusk, which was a sign of dignity and rank. One of the great men in that village was called Akuna, and he had given one of his sons to be taught in the white man's knowledge in Mr. Brown's school. Whenever Mr. Brown went to that village, he spent long hours with Akuna in his obi, talking through an interpreter about religion. Neither of them succeeded in converting the other, but they learned more about their different beliefs. So Mr. Brown sort of takes this approach of encountering the culture that's already in Umuafia and almost trying to build upon that with Christianity. And then he, I think he becomes sick and leaves the mission. And his replacement is called Reverend Smith. And he is very disappointed with Mr. Brown's work <laughs> thus far in Umuafia. And he takes a, a wildly different approach to missionary activity. Um, and there's a great quote about, about him just, that when he, just when he sort of landed there. And it says... Mr. Brown's successor was the Reverend James Smith, and he was a different kind of man. He condemned openly Mr. Brown's policy of compromise and accommodation. He saw things as black and white, and black was evil. He saw the world as a battlefield in which the children of light were locked in mortal conflict with the sons of darkness. He spoke in his sermons about sheep and goats and about wheat and tares. He believed in slaying the prophets of Baal. So he takes a very much more... The culture in Umofia has to be obliterated and we have to start from scratch with Christianity. And he tries to, when we were saying about the mission stories being these extreme and complex entities, 
he tries to force on it the idea that it's not complicated. He mm. wants it to be that black and white issue. He wants it to be that clear moral yes or no. Yeah. And so he's sort of imposing this idea that it is simple when yeah. it clearly isn't. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it's funny because Chino Achebe obviously positions these two approaches to mission and it's kind of, it's, I think it's clear to me at least that neither of them is like the right or like perfect approach to mission. I think of the two, I would probably tend towards Mr. Brown's more than Mr. Smith's just because... It also seems to have more success. Yeah, exactly, uh, it does. But yeah, but also that it's the not aggressive and not yeah like forceful version. But the thing that raises a question, and obviously this is according to Reverend Smith, so you know he's his own unreliable narrator. We don't know exactly how true this is, but he does suggest that Mr. Brown had watered down the faith that he was mm. teaching so that presumably that it was kind of more digestible. So like they didn't know what the Trinity was and they couldn't explain this and they didn't know basic doctrines. And maybe that's true we come to it a lot in silence about if you are going to go to these extreme lengths you better be bringing the truth (laughs) and that the truth is something objective and worth fighting for but at the same time there is a kind of softly softly approach that maybe the first thing that you introduce to people is not the nature of the trinity or some kind of very detailed teleological description of doctrine or yeah yeah that maybe he just wasn't given enough space or time to do that but you know there is a question in there if you are going to try to bring Christ to people, you can't just bring your version of Christ to people in a way, or a blander version that's easier to digest on the mm. basis that on a numbers game, you'll get more people that mm. way. I think there's a sense of as well about, you know, pedagogy and how like teaching works, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same with anything, whether it be teaching the faith, teaching, you know, mathematics, teaching science, you start from the basics. Mm-hmm. And I've heard Pope Francis talk about this, but, you know, when you, proclaim the gospel to someone who hasn't heard it or encountered it before you start with jesus christ as the son of god who loves you and died for you mm-hmm. like that is you know like almost like the kernel the heart of the gospel and then obviously we build upon that and you know things like the trinity and other aspects of our faith are, are essential but you start with the foundations yeah. and you build and then and also that as much as and you know i run a podcast that is about exploring and and being kind of more intellectual and more Mm. reflective about faith so clearly i'm not dismissing this but not everyone needs to have a faith that has like all of the catechism learned off and every nuance of every philosophical thomistic idea understood i think you can approach god with at least a, a decent framework and then just faith, you know? Yeah, of course. Um, it does depend both on the person and on the circumstance. I think when you live in a, a very Catholic society, the pressure sort of taken off you to know everything about it. But yeah. at the same, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have faith or don't have a relationship with Christ. So we can be maybe a little too harsh on people for not having these very technical philosophical points down. Yeah. When, yes, the truth is important. Yes, those elements are important. Yes, they are complicated but that you can still approach that with a a certain level of simplicity of faith. Yeah, on that, I just thought I had two sort of points. With these missionary stories, things fall apart, and particularly silence as well. It's almost like we're at ground zero, Mm -hmm. you know. Silence, even more so, I think. It's a place where Christianity has nothing, there's no roots to the tree. So, as we were saying, you kind of start from the beginning. And then also, you know, in the Gospel, Jesus, there's that encounter with, children he says blessed are you father lord of heaven and earth for you have revealed the mysteries of the kingdom to mere children and clearly i don't think he's saying you know these children know every doctrine there is to know 
but there is that essence of faith. And then that's not to say we don't build on that because of course we aspire to learn more about our faith as we kind of grow in the Christian life. Like the faith of a child is not the same as the faith of an adult and that's, you know, right and proper. Like we don't stay as children, you know, either physically or spiritually our whole lives, but without wanting to sound kind of patronising, but these characters in silence and things fall apart, like they are children in the faith in the sense that this is their first encounter with the yeah, faith. Yeah, yeah. And I think from the counterpoint of the example of Reverend Smith and, and the ways that he goes wrong, and it's very specific in that, like, he's so dismissive of the culture and he wants to see it destroyed. But I think in some ways the greatest crime that he does, even against the faith and, and against the ability to share the faith, is that when the village the village has been provoked into an attack on the church that's just outside the village and and the the community of christians there and they they don't kill anyone but they do burn church and he brings in the military forces of the colonial powers to deal with this mm-hmm. and it's this like the strong arm of the law like he has to appeal to political and military powers to sort of fight his fight in this and that's where you feel like he's really overstepping the boundary he's bringing the full might of her majesty's power in this area to bear on these relatively i don't want to say they're defenseless in the sense that they're great warriors but in terms of technology and and even manpower Hmm. that they can be overwhelmed and that seems so far from how christianity should be asserting itself yeah i love the quote about Reverend Smith and his kind of excessive zeal. <laughs> it goes, there was a saying in Umuafia that as a man danced, so the drums were beaten for him. Mr. Smith danced a furious step and so the drums went mad. <laughs> it's like, and, yeah, he just lets them off the chain. And, and, you and know. they're like war drums as well. Yeah. Like It's this frenzied beat exactly. that's calling people to, to violence. Obviously, I'm sure from Chinua Chebe's point of view, he also wants you to be really reflective of how Mr. Brown's approach is still crumbling this society. Yeah. But that definitely the villain of the story is the, the mm. kind of Reverend Smith character. But yeah, it's really fascinating maybe to move on to the mission for a second. I'm only going to talk about this one briefly because unfortunately Connor hasn't seen it. The I will do now. Yeah. <laughs> I I was very busy when I was preparing for this podcast. I was all over the place. And so I managed to buy the DVD for the mission twice. <laughs> <laughs> so I now have two copies of it. So I'm going to give Connor one of them for some post-podcast yeah. reflection. That's <laughs> biggest armament of the podcast. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the mission. I knew it from the, the musical score, but it was great to see it. And uh, a bit like Silence, very incredibly filmed and obviously an amazing location. So the story of the the mission is about uh, some Jesuit missionaries who are in, it's I think it's northern Argentina going into Paraguay. And they're ministering to a group of native people called the Guarani. But the main priest is called Father Gabriel and he's played by Jeremy Irons and he's very much the moral centre of the story and he he's a real pacifist. He goes to a community of people who have just martyred his own priest and so he takes it upon himself to be the next priest that goes to them and he wins them over simply by his complete surrender to them. He doesn't try to come in there with any sense of force or power. And then later he's joined by a former slave merchant and mercenary who's played by Robert De Niro 
and he has a tragedy in his own life and his perspective gets changed and he joins Father Gabriel and becomes really reconciled to these people that he formerly persecuted, but a bit like mm. we were saying with Bartolomeo de las Casas, mm. but he becomes this great advocate for them and becomes their friend and becomes part of their community. But unfortunately what's happening in the middle of this is a whole load of political intrigue and bureaucracy that feels like it should be so separate to the the simple mission of ministering to people. So the Jesuits are setting up these, they're called missions, um, where they're sort of communal farms where the native people are working and they, they live there and it's their community and, and it seems like a beautiful, very vibrant place. Um, but there's a lot of back and forth between the Spanish and Portuguese colonial powers because they want to take these people as slaves and a papal representative is sent to see what's going on, but really to just rubber stamp whatever the Spanish and Portuguese authorities want, because mm. that's kind of what he's there to do. And he sees the missions, and he comes as someone who's very against everything. He doesn't come with an open mind. He comes to rubber stamp this. He comes with the idea that he's just going to sign away these missions and allow yeah. and allow the native people to be captives and made into slaves. And Father Gabriel does this incredible work to show him the good work that they are doing. And the papal representative has this heartbreaking conundrum where he essentially has to rubber stamp it because the leaders of Spain and Portugal in Europe, if they weren't allowed to move on these missionary spaces, they would move to ban Jesuits across the world and specifically in Europe. So in order to try and preserve the Jesuits as a community, they're kind of put in this position where they have to sign away these particular missions. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. And so... The, the characters played by Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro, they decide to stay with the Guarani as they're about to be attacked and about to be overcome by these slave raiding missions from the colonial powers. But the real conflict comes in just at the end in this last battle where you're given two examples. Robert De Niro's character, because he was a fighter and because he knows how to do this, he sees it as, I'm going to fight for these people. I will kill other people for these these natives. They don't have anyone to fight for them. I have knowledge and skill and I can do something about this. Whereas Father Gabriel sees it, obviously, as intrinsically evil to kill these people, and especially as a priest, to take lives and engage in this fight. So he, he stays with the people as well, but he ministers to them as a priest and holds mass as they're being attacked and tries to be this spiritual protection for them rather than a physical protection for them. It, it's a really fascinating look because it, it feels like the opposite of things fall apart in that it's the priests taking the side of the natives against the colonial forces mm. and how even when you're doing that and you're on the side of not oppressing native people, there's still really complicated questions to be asked and there's yeah. still really nuanced points about what you can and can't do in defense of people yeah and again as we're going to come to it silence but i think the papal emissary says they would have been better if we had never come at all mm. and is that true and were they better wow. knowing christ so yeah i thought it was a really fascinating film i'm really glad i watched it obviously it's one of those great films that everyone yeah. should watch the final scene is the papal emissary i think he's called cardinal altamirano but he's in a room with these colonial leaders who are saying he's he's saying did you really have to slaughter them that way what did you really have to have this enormous battle and kill all of these people and the colonial leaders are kind of like eh, well you know that's that's just how it goes yeah. here in the colonies like you can't change that and one of them says we must work in the world 
the world is thus. And the cardinal replies, no, thus we have made the world, thus I have made it. So it is this rejection of saying that like, this is just the ways of the world. And that was yeah. very much the view at the time for a colony. Oh, they're not really human. They don't matter as much. They can't be taught Christ. They can't be brought to a real sense of Christianity. Yeah. Which I think we were discussing, which is fascinating because you know, as much as it is true to say that Christianity in many ways has become a very Western religion, it's not like it was actually founded in Rome. No, exactly. <laughs> it's not like it grew up in the United Kingdom like, yeah. or something like that. Like, essentially, yeah, it was born in what, like, what we'd now call the Middle East. Yeah. So to say, you know, particularly in things fall apart, and it sounds like in the mission as well, there's this idea of, you know, Christianity coming over from the West of all its cultures and traditions, where it's like, well, Obviously, Western Christianity, British Christianity, Portuguese Christianity will kind of accumulate those traditions around it as it, you know, embeds itself within the culture. But that's not necessarily an essential part of Christianity, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. 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 And so, like, thus we have made the world. Yeah. That, like, and so much of what is wrong with this situation is how we have set it up yeah. and how we have contributed to this suffering and how culpable we are in all of this. Yeah. So I thought it was a, a beautiful movie and it does set up the ne next movie very well, which is Silence. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, we could have really done a whole... If, if I hadn't read... I, I read Things Fall Apart first and then The Mission and then I finished with Silence and I was like, oh man, I mean, like, like as great as the other two are, I really could have just done the whole thing on Silence. Yeah, I think if you'd watched Silence first, you'd have just sat for a month and just pondered upon it and like <laughs> never got around to the other two so and i will say not only is it a, a brutal film and we have our whole episode on violent films and whether they're acceptable it's not p-rated it's not p-rated she's not, phoebe's not here to defend herself but she will agree it is not p-rated in that episode i advocated on behalf of violence in movies mm. and i certainly do advocate for it in this movie i think it's an incredible work of art i think it needs to be the way it is i think it's a bit like the passion of the christ yes the violence is excessive but it is reflective of a real experience of people in the mm. world and so you're not doing them a good service by making it easier to watch it but i will say honestly for me i almost found it unwatchable like really? it's not even crazy explicit in most of the film but it's so devastating how not only complete the level of aggression is towards Christianity, but how cunning it is yeah. and how much it manipulates things to be the most painful and the most devastating possible. So maybe, yeah, maybe you want to give a, a sum up of this story. Yeah, so it starts these two, I think they're Portuguese, right? Yep. The two missionaries, Jesuits again, they get around. Um, <laughs> They are going to their superior and they basically say to their superior, look, Father Ferrara, Ferreira, he was almost like their spiritual teacher and he had gone before them to Japan, which at the time was completely hostile to Christianity. It's set in, is it in the 16th century? Uh, yeah, I yeah. think it's set in the 1600s. 1600s, sorry. So they're saying, you know, we've lost Father Ferreira and we can't abandon him. He's been out of contact. Nobody knows yeah. what happened to him. We know there was great persecutions happening against the Christians at this time because it, just to give a bit of like historical context the Jesuits went to Japan and initially were immensely successful yeah. but a combination of how successful they were and also how much of an impact the colonizing forces of the world were having on Japan 
Japan chose to essentially close all of its borders for mm. I think more than a hundred years, wouldn't allow any outside influence into the country, and as part of that, systematically tried to destroy every evidence of Christianity from their culture. Yeah, and it's a it's an interesting exchange actually, just right at the very start of the film, where two Jesuits they're called Father Rodriguez and Father Garupe, and they're asking their superior to be allowed to go to Japan and essentially search for Father Ferreira. And be the last, because they were going to be the only priests that the Jesuits were going to send, because yeah. it's sort of like a suicide mission anyway, Yeah. Um, that these would be the last priests in Japan. Yeah, and it's very interesting because the superior is very unconvinced at first and they have this discussion and then he says to them, you guys are really convinced of this, aren't you? And they say, yeah. And he said, then I must trust that God has put this desire in your heart which is just an interesting start to the film to see how it then develops. So anyway, the Rodriguez and Garupe then make their way to, I think they go to Macau in China, and they find like the only Japanese in Macau who is a character called Kichijiro, who is an extremely interesting character. Mm -hmm. uh, he is a sort of drunkard at this point, and the, this guy finds him on, on the priest's behalf, and he essentially charts their course for them to Japan. They come over in this boat, and it's just desolate. They arrive, crashing waves. The sky is like so grey and heavy with cloud. And, and they come and essentially Kichijiro is their only hope because they come, they don't speak Japanese. They land on this kind of beach, which the civilization looks like has never touched. And Kichijiro runs away, but then returns. And he has brought the sort of the nearest village. And there's a small Christian community there. And they come and they bring the priests with them. And the priests sort of settle among them and then and, and are hidden by them and are hidden by them exactly yeah. yeah because at this point anyone who is a christian or uh, they have um levels of reward don't they for if you give up a christian it's a hundred pieces of silver mm -hmm. if you give up a christian brother it's 200 pieces of silver if you give up a christian priest it's 300 pieces of silver so obviously there's a great motivation for non-christians and even people who would be christian to abandon the faith and, and give give up these priests. So that's the, the sort of setting, really. Mm -hmm. And then the film just goes on from there, really following Rodriguez and Garupe. They split at some point and go to different villages. And should, spoiler alert? Yeah, I mean, I feel like most people have kind of heard of it. I knew the basic trajectory of the plot going in. And in some ways, it only made the film more tense for yeah. me. Yeah, warning, it, there'll be some spoilers. I think yeah. for this one, you kind of need to talk about what happens in yeah. it in order to convey why it's such a, a fascinating story. So yeah. if you want, pause for two hours and 40 <laughs> minutes to watch this film. It was brutal how long it was because yeah. I think when you're amped up to that level of tension, I, like all I want to do is like, say, like, oh, it's a cool 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, this thing is two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, so if you want, pause, watch silence and come back. And, uh, <laughs> you know make yourself a good cup of sweet tea to, yeah, yeah. to recover or something stronger but um <laughs> so yeah it's the garupe and rodriguez split and then the film essentially focuses on rodriguez and he is again he's with kichijiro it's this sort of drunkard who brought him to japan kichijiro sells him out to the state and yeah. gives him up i think there's this one important bit because it, it's this motif and this moment that recurs throughout the film it's over and over again because the main thing that the Japanese forces want the Christians to do is is apostatize and the way that they publicly apostatize in Japanese culture is that the Japanese forces present them with 
an icon either of Jesus or of Our Lady, maybe holding Jesus. They're these carved metal icons. Mm. And they're asked to step on it. So they're put on the ground and they're asked to put their feet on it and in that way apostatize and and say that the, the faith means nothing to them so much so that they can stand on the face of Jesus. Yeah. And so I think in the as far as you can tell from the first wave of persecution, they essentially took everyone who refused to do that and slaughtered them. Mm. And so all of the remaining Christians in the community are people who have capitulated and have done this in order to survive. And when we say that they were slaughtered, I mean it shows them being burned alive. It shows them, you know, this is not a small amount of duress that these people no. are, are under. They are really fighting for their lives and fighting to be saved from the most horrific deaths imaginable. And, you know, the film takes the time to show the many ways in which they were, <laughs> they, they were killed. But so this cycle of apostatizing is constantly shown and, and it's expected kind of over and over again. And I think one of the really interesting things about that is that by the time the priests arrive, Obviously, like I said, all of these people have apostatized, so they're all desperate for confession. Mm. They're all absolutely like, that's the one thing you see over and over again is these people weeping and begging for confession, um, which is so moving. And and considering how flippantly we feel about confession in the modern world, that it is very moving. Uh, There's a lot of beautiful mass scenes as well, but for me, the sobbing approach to to confession is really moving but you know it makes sense when you're thinking of these people are living with the burden that they have apostatized and even though they didn't want to so during this time the priests the forces come to their town and they force all of the christians or at least scapegoated four christians to to apostatize again and three of them refuse kichijiro is the one who doesn't refuse he kind of this comes up a lot that he he is he calls himself a weak man he Mm. constantly capitulates whenever he's presented with it but three of them don't and they're left to be crucified Crucified on on the the beach on on the incoming tide so that they're essentially they're they're drowned by the incoming tide and one of the people it takes them four days to die it's And he's singing Tantum Aragon at the end. And it's so... It's really moving, that whole scene. That's one of the most impactful scenes. I think it's the one that sort of visually stays in your mind. But like you said, so Chichijiro, at various times, he keeps capitulating and keeps apostatizing and keeps coming back. But at one point, part of his betrayal is that he hands rodriguez over to the authorities yeah and so then for kind of all the second half of the movie rodriguez is in prison and is in the power of these japanese authorities who are determined to make him apostatize they said that they learned from their mistake don't kill the priests because you just make them into martyrs and the people believe in their faith even more the real key is to make the priests apostatize and by doing so eliminate the hope and the confidence in the church from the, from the followers. Yeah. And um, there's this one, uh, in, again, it was Stephen Gray Danis. He had an excellent, he is, I think he has two different articles on, on silence and they were both really good. But he, he says, smite the shepherd wrote the prophet Zechariah and the sheep will be scattered. Not only have the Japanese inquisitors learned this lesson, They've also learned an insidious inverse principle to break the shepherd, smite the sheep. Yeah, that's a really profound thought because that is essentially, as you say, what happens in the second half of the film. Rodriguez is imprisoned and it's this weird, slow torture, but he's not being tortured. He's actually kind of fed and watered fairly well. Mm -hmm. It starts to look more uh, human, but 
as you say, they, they look to break him. They have this thing called the pit, which is essentially an open pit, and they suspend five of the Christians upside down over it, hang them in this pit, and then, so the blood is obviously rushed to their head, but they make a small incision on their neck so that drops of blood drop out of their neck while they're hanging upside down, which means that that basically the blood rushing to their head won't kind of kill them, they won't die, that it would be a very slow painful death or torture mm-hmm. and they force Rodriguez to watch this and they also like they force him to watch drownings they force yeah. him to watch decapitations yeah. there's almost like a never-ending cycle of ways that they can kill him and th- this pit is the the breaking point for yeah. him but right beforehand they introduce him to his once spiritual director Ferrero who was also I think it is important I read a lot of reviews of this and they they talk a lot about how Ferrero has abandoned his his faith but to his credit he was also extremely put to the test and yeah. he was put over the pit yeah so it wasn't I I don't think he came to that lightly yeah but at the same time so he has since apostatized and is now living as a Japanese priest and is actually writing indictments against the church for them and he has accepted he's been given a wife and family of a, another killed Christian the father of this household has been killed and so they give him the whole household and he is now living this Japanese life that is dictated to by the Japanese authorities and they use him to try to convince Rodriguez to step on the Fumi, step on the icon and and apostatize. Yeah, so then kind of after Rodriguez has apostatized, the sort of final segment of the film is this really interesting perspective where Ferreira and Rodriguez are now, they call them like the lost priests of Japan. So as, as Rachel said, they've become subsumed into the culture they have japanese families they have they dress japanese they learn japanese and they essentially are employed by the authorities to uh, when traders come in they root through all their goods and throw out any christian artifacts so there's a scene of them going through everything that the traders have brought and saying you know christian not christian so even if it's like a, a plate and in the decoration of the plate if there's a small cross they say okay christian and they get rid of it and so that way they're actively working against the church. Precisely, yeah. And then the film comes to its climax. Kichijiro shows up again and he tramples on the, the icon again, but he's found to have this little Christian amulet and Kichijiro is kind of punished for that. But the film ends with Rodriguez dying and... Of old age, like old just, age, yeah. ju- just having lived his, his life in Japan. Yeah, having a, a Japanese burial. His wife, you know, comes to the burial and all of that. And the final scene of the film is very interesting because he's in this, this sort of circular casket. So he's sat in it and he's being cremated and it the camera sort of is on the outside of the casket and it goes inside and so you see his, his body and just in his hand he has this tiny wooden cross that Mochichi, who was one of the Christians who was crucified on the beach, gave to him a long time ago. And... So the film kind of leaves you with this, essentially, obviously Rodriguez has apostatized and not only apostatized once, but then lived out the rest of his life as an agent against the church. And then there's this, yeah, final scene of the crucifix in his hand and it's like, it's just left very open-ended about mm-hmm. as to, I think the final line is something that he died estranged from God. Or, or yeah, renouncing God. Yeah. And then the, the kind of final line is, but as to that, only God can decide. And yeah, it ends with that scene. Yeah, it's very moving. It's one of those movies that you can think about for a very long time. We, we've been talking about it, but it, there's so much to analyse. And I think 
There's questions of how does the movie portray the story and how are we as an audience supposed to react. The moment he does apostatize for the first time, he believes he hears the voice of God telling him to do it to, to, to sort of end the suffering of his fellow Christians and saying like, you can do this, trample, like step on me. But the movie's called Silence and I think there's a real sense that God doesn't speak because he spends the whole movie saying like, why aren't you speaking? Why won't you show yourself to me? I've been praying, I'm doubting. Are you here? Do you listen? I think Rodriguez himself reflects that God didn't even speak after Jesus says, you know, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, even in that moment that God is silent. But there's a lot of subtle hints. You can hear the, the cock crowing after he steps on it the three times. Um, but as an audience, it's still, I think a lot of people did look at it and say, oh, well, he did the right thing, or this is just how it is. It's, it's that line from the mission, like, this is the way the world is, mm. and the world is thus, and we have to work in it. And it's such an extreme experience. And in terms of like looking at it, I am certainly not judging the characters for failing in particular moments. But I definitely think as Catholics, you have to assert that like the act of apostatizing is wrong. And I was saying that the really heartbreaking thing for him is that he does this thing and then he becomes like the rest of the people in that he's committed this great sin and he has no one to absolve him. He's mm. the last priest. Yeah. And so I think that might be a big reason in why he despairs. Like he holds out for so long and he goes through so much. But the really sad thing is, is that he commits this sin and it is a sin. It, it is a break and it, it is an example. They keep saying that like, it's just a formality. It's just a formality. Yeah. But then as soon as he does it, the priest has apostatized. The priest has apostatized. It spreads like wildfire. So it's clearly not just a formality. It is about setting an example and, and living that example. Uh, Phoebe actually mentioned when we were discussing this beforehand that that story from Maccabees where the old man refuses to eat the food that was considered unclean by the Jewish religion and so he refuses to partake in this feast of this conquering nation and so he is brutally murdered but the reason he gives is that I will not be this example like yeah. maybe I could just capitulate for my own sake but I won't set this example for other people and whereas Rodriguez after all of this resistance and all of this work and all of this faith that he has he does just allow himself to leave that all behind and say that this has to be good enough he becomes the, i think like the governor of the area where he used to minister to people mm. and this very evil inquisitor guy he was like you can allow those christians to live now because he doesn't care because as long as the, there are no more priests as long as the priests have apostatized it's not as important to kill all of the christians because he keeps saying like mm. the roots are cut yeah. but yeah it's a really really fascinating film i think the point you made when we discussed this rachel which is the most pertinent to me is as you say that they're subjected to the most extreme forms of persecution and they do apostatize and as we both said i think well i know at least if i was in that position i don't think it would have taken me as long as him to step on no. the icon i but, would i was saying like i would never suggest that anything is impossible to god yeah but it would take anything less than an absolute miracle of grace yeah and i i would have yeah i, I would have apostatized but then it's what he then does with it mm -hmm. and this was the comparison between Ferreira and Rodriguez and Kichijiro mm -hmm. so Kichijiro like we said he does it over and over again to an extent that's like like you you begin to get so frustrated with him because yeah. he apostatizes and then he goes way out of his way to find the priests to get absolution again and then he betrays them and then he allows himself to to be put in prison just so that he can get confession and so he keeps doing this cycle where he does this terrible thing that he knows is a terrible thing and tears him up inside 
but he, he's too weak not to do it. He's too afraid. And so I said that he's like the Judas that refuses to despair yeah. because he betrays Christ. And obviously we know that that was such an incredible sin, but he refuses to then say, well, I'm, I, I'm out now. I despair. Yeah. He, instead, he keeps coming back and keeps asking for absolution. And it's really fascinating. And it's not to say that, oh, then he was the good character because he, no. he does lead to many people's death and, and the apostasy of, of Rodriguez, but that he still has so much hope for mercy and that, God's mercy is still waiting for him every yeah, yeah, time he does time. it. That like there is still absolution to be offered, which is incredible to think about. And I know historically there was a big discussion about whether you could get absolution for apostasy. But as far as the understanding in, in the 1600s, yes, yeah, yeah, like he could keep coming back for absolution, which is crazy to me the extent of God's mercy. It's an incredible scene. Like as you say, Kichiro sells rodriguez to the authorities it's like so so obvious the, the parallels the authorities come they take him away uh, rodriguez away they throw the pieces of silver at kichijiro's feet and he abhors them he doesn't pick them up then he gets put into prison just so he can be with rodriguez and there's that scene where he asks rodriguez for absolution for having sold out rodriguez and he's such a lowly character at this point that he smells so bad that Rodriguez almost can't approach him. Yeah. And he says, I smell of sin. Yeah. And as much as that's like a, a beautiful metaphor, but it is also like a lived reality. Like he literally stinks. Yeah. And I think that was is related to a point that you made that I thought was really interesting is that like he has no shame or rather he has no pride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has no, he has no boundary of saying like, I'm too proud to go and do that. Yeah. I think that's actually on the theme of mission. That's one of the, this film brought out to me that, one of the dangers for mission and missionaries is this sense of pride. And you very much see that in both Ferreira and Rodriguez. Rodriguez has this sense of, I'm here to bring Christ to these people. And there's that thing where before he sold out, he's looking in the river and he sees, he's looking at his reflection and you know he's got a, a huge beard by this point and overgrown hair. But he sees, there's this portrait, I think it's by El Greco of Christ. And he sees his own reflection and then his own reflection morphs into Christ mm -hmm. and he starts laughing hysterically. You can tell he started to think of himself as a Christ-like figure and he has this pride and his pride is almost what, when he does apostatize, what stops him. He apostatizes and then he despairs. He just says, now I've apostatized, I must just live out the rest of my life persecuting the church. Or that it's almost that I am Christ and I couldn't have possibly done something that wrong. Yeah. So it must have been right to do that. Exactly. He has that moment after he's apostatized where Akichijiro again asks him for absolution and he says, I can't give you absolution now because, you know, I'm no longer a padre. And then he has this internal monologue and he says to God, even if you had been silent all my life, everything I have said and done up to this point speaks of you. And like Rachel in particular was like, no, like you stood on, you stood on Jesus. Like that did not speak of Jesus, but he's kind of so convinced himself of his pride. And he, he thinks that, you know, I'm what I done must have been right almost because I did it. And, you know, I'm the last priest in Japan. Yeah. Whereas Kichijiro is literally, he says, there's this point where he says to Rodriguez, you know, what place is there in the world for a weak man? He just knows he is scum. He's yeah. like the bottom of the barrel mm -hmm. from start to finish in the film. But that means that there's no obstacle for him to mm -hmm. seeking grace because he just knows that like he needs it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's incredible. And I think what's interesting is that certainly in the 
first part of the film, Rodriguez is portrayed as the more sympathetic of the two priests that go out because mm. Garupe is very much more hardline. And he also finds it tougher. He freaks out at one point and needs, he's like, I need to get out of this. They're in this house that they have to hide away in. And he's like, I need to get out. And he's being short-tempered. And, and when presented with the fact that these townspeople are going to have to have the choice again to apostatize and step upon the Fumi, Rodriguez has the sort of compassion to say, trample. And Garupe is the one that's like, no, no, you can't do that. You have to bear whatever they give you and not mm. trample. And as a viewer, you're kind of with Rodriguez in that you're like, you know, you can't ask people to do that. But he's he's so much more hardline. And in that way, he's seen as kind of weaker in that yeah. he, he doesn't have the, the capacity to be compassionate in the same way as Rodriguez is. But then we see actually how he has a much more... Again, spoiler, but um, he is killed, whereas Rodriguez is kept alive to witness the suffering. Presumably because they saw that he wasn't arrogant in the way that Rodriguez is, that he is the saviour and that he has this sort of Christ complex. And so he doesn't capitulate, but he does die trying to save people who are being killed for their faith. And so it's not that he ever gives up on his faith but he doesn't ever stop fighting for those people either and he dies in the effort and one of the quotes was like notably Rodriguez seems initially stronger and more disciplined in his faith than Garupe who struggled more with misgivings and failings you're a bad Jesuit Rodriguez chides Garupe with a smile sometimes though weakness proves stronger than strength and that's such a Christian idea that like actually the the weaknesses of Garupe made him more equipped to witness to God than the sort of quote-unquote strength of Rodriguez's faith. Yeah, it's fascinating that Garupe is sort of on the one side, as you say, kind of originally seen as this sort of hardliner, but then he is the one who, he dies trying to save some of the Christians from drowning, whereas Rodriguez and also Ferreira, they save themselves, and obviously... And and allow themselves to have a comfortable life. Yeah, and there's this great exchange before Rodriguez meets Ferreira, where Rodriguez is talking to one of his imprisoners, and the imprisoner's saying, you're going to meet Ferreira soon, and he's like asking him, did he know Ferreira? And Rodriguez is like, oh, I've heard of him. And the imprisoner says, yes, he's very well known in Japan. Father Ferreira is held in very high esteem now, which I believe is why he came here in the first place. And it's this kind of like play on the pride of Mm -hmm. Rodriguez and Ferreira where... You know, they came, the last missionaries to go to Japan to, to spread the gospel of Christ. And they are, when they die, both of them, they are well known, but obviously... For the wrong reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And Rodriguez is so desperate to be a martyr. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways that, in a missionary, that compulsion can be a good thing. I'm not saying that, like, the the desire to put yourself in a position where it might cost you your life is inherently bad. But there is an element of the ego about it, that, like, yeah. the fame of being this person who... And so he's... Obviously, I'm not trying to say he is devastated when he sees the suffering of the people, but it's also that the opportunity of martyrdom is being deprived, like he's being deprived of that opportunity because they're keeping him alive, that they won't allow him to be martyred for it. But I thought it was really interesting. So when they have the discussion with Ferrero for the first time and Ferrero is trying to convert Rodriguez to this sort of Japanese way of life and to forsake the Christian elements it really struck me how obviously on a much more like macro scale and uh, not trying to compare our our existence and like our our struggles in in terms of witnessing to Christ in in this day and age and specifically in this time I know certainly in the Middle East um there are, are 
and Sri Lanka, as we've seen recently, that there are people who are in real danger when they're witnessing to Christ. But, you know, to look at it from a secular Western culture, you can see how we're capitulating and how we're like frittering away our faith in some ways. And Ferrero appears and he's clearly so broken, spiritually broken. Again, he looks healthy. He's been fed. He's got this comfortable life, but he looks so emotionally and spiritually broken and the guards keep saying you're much better off here and he's making this sort of case to Rodriguez like yes you want to be like me you want to do this and uh he says it's good to finally be of use and so he's saying that like oh they're very behind on their medicine so now that now that I'm not being persecuted I can offer them medicine and so I'm helping people and that's not to say that physically helping people is a bad thing but it's what you're left with when you sacrifice the actual faith and spirituality of the faith when you're just left with be a good person do nice things for people it's utilitarianism mm. it's like the only measure of success is whether you can have some quantifiable impact and i was saying that it's like you only have material things to offer you don't have anything sacramental to offer it's almost like offering people bread instead of the eucharist mm. that you know he's um abandoned any ability to minister sacramentally to to the people of japan and so he's like oh well i can offer something utilitarian yeah. and obviously from a catholic and a christian point of view there's so much more to offer people in the yeah. world and particularly because he you know he is a priest so mm -hmm. he goes there as a priest yeah and then you're yeah. not there to obviously heal the sick is part of priestly kind yeah, of yeah. mentality but that's not your primary reason for being there no but yeah he's sort of just capitulates so much that he yeah, he now sees himself as, as useful. But as you can see when you're seeing him make the argument to Rodriguez, like he, you can tell he's not convinced of it. And there's that scene later in, when Rodriguez and Ferreira are like sorting through the traders' goods and you know, picking out the Christian stuff and giving that to the authorities where um, Ferreira refers to our Lord and mm -hmm. like Rodriguez picks him up on it and says, oh, you said our Lord. And it's like this flash of like, oh, are they still, you know, mm -hmm. are they still keeping the faith? And Ferreira just kind of looks at him and says, I doubt it. Like, it's yeah. just, he's, he's almost despaired at himself so much. And again, I think the pride thing comes in a lot that there's not, as you said, nothing sacramental left to offer. All he can do is be a useful member of society. Yeah. One or two other things I wanted to pick up on, which is that seeing Rodriguez have to watch his, his flock and his community suffer on his behalf really made me reflect on our Lady's place in the Passion and watching our Lord go through it and how that's not to say and it's not to say that she suffered more than Christ in the Passion but in some ways we can often assume that the most difficult thing to go through would be to be in pain and to be persecuted and to be struck down in this way but there is a unique and powerful pain in watching helplessly as someone else suffers. Mm. It, it did really make me reflect on our Lady and even like uh, St. John and, and the other people who stood at the, the foot of the cross that how much every part of you wants to turn away and run away and not yeah. look at this, uh, how this is happening. I thought that was really moving. And then the, the last thing that I was going to bring up, which is that there's a bit of a discussion at the moment going around about the, the translations of the Our Father and the, the line of contention, which it seems it's being argued that it's not a very accurate translation of the, the original, which is, lead us not into temptation. And that kind of implies that maybe 
God would lead you into temptation. The discussion that's happening, I, I think it might be happening about changing it in English, but for the most part, I think it's actually in maybe Italian or something mm. like that, that thinking of changing the, the wording slightly to reflect the, the original text, not that they're, they're changing the words, but that maybe a truer reading of that line is, do not let us be tested. And I think that should be our prayer because it's a real prayer of humility that our whole lives we should say do not let me be tested because like you were saying there's the ego of saying like I can take it on and like yeah. I can do this and we'll be the missionaries we'll be the last priests I can do this and obviously there is a good in, in that initial impulse but you have to check it and say that it's not coming from a place of ego yeah. that you should be praying that you would not be put to the test and that was what I was doing the whole time watching this movie yeah. was please do not ever let me be in a situation like this because it seems so completely unbearable and the real heroes of the story are those Christians who even when the priests apostatize they yeah. continue the faith like yeah. they they don't despair they continue they live in hope they hope for better things they hope for a day where they can have faith and eventually in generations to come that did come and this was written by a Japanese Christian who is the result of those missions and but more specifically of the Christians who kept that faith alive through persecution so I think they certainly come across to me as the real heroes of the story. Absolutely, yeah. And it's interesting because Phoebe had just been to Japan and I was mm -hmm. talking to her about it and she was saying like in Nagasaki, which the film doesn't ever actually get to Nagasaki, but it's just kind of held up as the the, the real Golgotha where that is the sort of point where all Christians are killed, persecuted. Mm -hmm. She is saying like there in Nagasaki now there's, you know, this great shrine to Christian martyrs and that. Yeah. So yeah, definitely they're kind of witness and faith is just something incredible. And again, it kind of brings us back a little bit to what we were saying about with things fall apart about, you know, how much of the doctrine they need to understand the, yeah. the role of the missionary in conveying doctrine. Because they have, when Ferreira is trying to convince Rodriguez to apostatize, they have this discussion and Ferreira is saying, you know, the Christianity that they believe is nothing like our Christianity. And he mm -hmm. gives this example where he's talking about, you know, the son of God. And he's like, they think that is the sun. Like he points up at the sun. He's like, yeah, yeah. they just think when you say the son of God, they're pointing out the sun God. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of trying to say, you, know, you think you're trying to teach these people Christianity and the gospel because of, I don't know, it's getting lost in translation or something. Yeah. And what they believe is not Christianity. So it's just not worth it. You might as well just apostatize because they have this discussion. And he says, Japan is just like a swamp. He says, it just Christianity just doesn't work here. It won't mm -hmm. take root. And yet that's such a delusion because as Rodriguez pointed out, it was flourishing when Ferreira arrived. Yeah. Like he, in living memory, the faith was flourishing. And Phoebe sent me a picture that she took when she was in Nagasaki, which was of a, a stone carving of a letter that in this memorial that they've showed you one of the letters. It says, the text of St. Thomas Kazaki, who's 14, a letter to his mother written in his way to Nagasaki. So he was being led to his death at age 14. Yeah. And this was in 1597. So this was like slightly before the, the time that we were discussing this was probably in the initial purge of Christians and he said with the help of the Lord's grace I am writing these lines the priests and the others who are journeying to be crucified in Nagasaki number in all 24 as testified in the sentence that is carried on a board ahead of us you should not worry about me and my father Michael I hope to see you both very soon there in paradise although you need the priests if you are deeply sorry for your sins and have much devotion at the hour of your death and if you remember and acknowledge the many blessings of jesus christ then you will be saved and bear in mind that everyone in this world has to come to an end and so strive that you will not lose the happiness of heaven 
Whatever men may impose on you, try to have patience and show much charity for everyone. It is really necessary that my two brothers, Mancius and Philip, do not fall into the hands of heathens. I commend you to our Lord, and I send you prayers for everybody we know. Remember to have great sorrow for your sins, for this alone is important. Although he sinned against God, Adam was saved by his sorrow and penance. Obviously, this is extra textual to the film. Yeah. But the idea that there wasn't a... Like, that's... For a 14-year-old, that's yeah. such a comprehensive understanding of the faith. Even the nuance of saying, obviously, confession in the sacrament is vital. Yeah. But in a situation where you can't get it, it is acceptable to just want to confess. Yeah, yeah. And like we said, like, I have so much sympathy for everyone in the situation. I'm not yeah. saying, oh, it's easy. They're wrong. He should have just known. But it's not that I don't have sympathy. But they are deluding themselves when they say that. Yeah. say this, that... Like, to me, it was like in the mission where they were saying the Guarani couldn't possibly understand faith. These people are, are subhuman in some way and so couldn't possibly be brought to the fullness of understanding of Christ. And that is so against everything we believe and stand mm. for. I, th I think we're going to have to wrap up. We've gone <laughs> way, way long. I was going to talk about some of the amazing saintly missionaries, but I'll just name them and mm. I would encourage you to, to look them up. There's the North American martyrs. One of the big names in them is Jean de Brebeuf. He learned the Native American languages and was this incredible linguistic mind. And then he was awfully and horribly martyred. But the kind of next generation down from him, you have Saint Kateri Tekawitha, who was this saint who was a Native American and, mm. and converted and converted through the efforts of those Jesuit missionaries at that time. So it, you can see the fruits of it. And then finally, one of my personal favourite saints is Saint Damien of Molokai, who was a Belgian saint who was sent to a leper colony in Hawaii and worked his whole life to serve that community until he himself got leprosy and died. He's considered a martyr of charity and he He's, he's amazing. So I really recommend looking into those those saints. And other than that, I think we just have our final question. Did you remember to prepare this I one? I did, yeah, yeah. Excellent. So what have you been... I've been trying to choose. <laughs> what have you been enjoying at the moment? So I went to see the new version of The Lion King last weekend. Yes. So the live animation one. And it was very enjoyable. It's I wouldn't want to compare it to the original because it's just, you know, that's just too high a bar for anyone to meet. But it's definitely worth it. It's definitely not a like a travesty of a remake it's, it's really good and also alongside that Beyonce's in it but she's also released like there's the soundtrack but then she's released a separate album called The Gift which is kind of like some songs that are in The Lion King and some that her and various artists have just made and uh, it's really good so check that out amazing and I I went to a concert recently for an Irish band called Villagers which was amazing and they were great. I didn't really know a lot of their stuff going in and it was one of those great things where you didn't necessarily have a lot of expectations mm. but you had a great experience. And I guess if I were to name one song that you should check out, I would say Nothing Arrived. And specifically, I love their, there's a live acoustic version, which you can get on Spotify and on YouTube. Like they have an official live acoustic version and it's, it's amazing and I really enjoy it. So... Other than that, we'll quickly sum up and say thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this. I, I know it was quite an intense topic, but yeah. there was a lot to talk about, <laughs> clearly. Um, but hopefully it maybe brought up some interesting points. And, uh, and like I said, hopefully it treated the topic with as much compassion and mm. balance and nuance as as it required so um i certainly hope and pray for that and in the meantime if you can leave a review or like send me a message on on my website or on twitter i'm at seeking watson on twitter and instagram and there's also a instagram account for the podcast called at risking enchantment podcast so please follow us there and 
uh, share it with your friends and thanks so much for listening goodbye bye this has been Risking Enchantment music by Kevin MacLeod you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson and you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com Thank you and God bless.